Luke chapter number 16. Today we are in the second half of Jesus' teaching on eternal stewardship. This is a story commonly known as Lazarus and the Rich Man. Who in here this morning would say, I've never heard a sermon on Lazarus and the Rich Man? Anybody who's never heard a sermon on this passage? All of us. Yeah. So it's a, a unique passage to try to preach then, because I know you've heard it before. It's also a passage that teaches us uh, pretty clearly about heaven and hell. Some would say this is a parable. Some would say that it is not. I think it applies either way. Jesus is teaching in parable form here. And, and if he is giving this as a parable, well, what is a parable? It's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Well, the meaning is clear in this passage. If it's not a parable, because he does name Lazarus, I guess that would be a good proof that this is talking about somebody real. Now, this is not Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, Martha's brother. The time frame does not line up right for this to be Lazarus' death, so this would be someone else. Um, hard to think of that being a common name back then, like Bill or John. And there's Lazarus. I guess that was a common name back then, a little more. Uh, either way, it's... There's some eternal truths here. So I don't enter this passage lightly. I enter it with a heavy heart. I enter it burdened thinking about the material that is here. And so we take it with much seriousness this morning. In this, I want us to note Jesus' teaching about two people, two places, and then two prayers. Let's read it and then we'll get into it. Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 19. There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen, and he fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores, and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, And seeing Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed. So that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham. But if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets... Neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Let's pray. Father, we do not take lightly what we have before us here this morning. And all of the things that Jesus instructed us about during his life and ministry, we are much helped. But in this one, we take it with high regard, knowing that this is Jesus, God the Son, instructing the religious and the non-religious alike in his day, that this is what eternity looks like. And so, Father, as we are people who live knowing that today could be our last, but for sure in some amount of time, our time on this earth will end. 
we take great reverence and seriousness with such a passage. So, Father, we come before you today asking for your help. As the old hymn writer wrote, all is vain unless the spirit of the Holy One come down. Lord, we would apply that to this time of preaching this morning. I can give my notes and we can look at this passage and we can think thoughts in our head and finish at the time. And all of that just be simply in vain unless your Holy Spirit moves upon us, speaks through the word to us. So Father, we ask for your blessing upon this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So we began Jesus' teaching on Lazarus and the rich man. We are introduced initially to two people in verse 19, 20, and 21. In verse number 19, we are introduced to someone Jesus simply calls the rich man. There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. So in introducing us to this character, Jesus teaches us a few things. First, we learn about his possessions. He is dressed in the best and he eats the best on a day-to-day basis. Just backing up the premise here that this is someone with means. Secondly, we are introduced to his position. We know that Lazarus is placed at his gate. So he's certainly on a piece of property that is has a, a gate out front. And then it says he's clothed in purple, which brings our mind to royalty, nobility. So we think of this as some castle. It's a big, great big place and it has a gate out front. So this is a man who has royalty attached to his state of being, a king, a lord, one who is master over others. Then we're introduced to a beggar. Verse 20 says, There was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores, and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. In describing to us the beggar, Jesus teaches us about his pain in verse number 20. He says his body is covered with sores. We're not exactly sure what his health condition is that would lead to this, but nevertheless, we see these as um, engrossed, oozing. These dogs came and licked him. So this guy's in, he's in bad shape. We see his poverty. Not only is his health this bad, it's preventing him from working. And so his whole state of being is to prop himself up outside the gate of this king and simply hope that they'll bring him a plate of crumbs that fall from the table. We would, we would often say leftovers, but this is not even leftovers. These are just the waste, the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table, the things that typically those dogs would eat, I guess. So he's in pain, he's in great poverty. And as we think of the rich man's position up against Lazarus's position, we see that that is his position, laid at the gate. And the only creatures on earth that care for this man are these dogs that came and licked his sores. Now, I think we need to note these contrasts within the context can take the story of Lazarus and the rich man outside of the context of what Jesus is teaching and doing here. And I think you're fine there, but you'll come to some poor conclusions. If you just took it like it is today, well then, what's happening to all the rich in life? They're going to go where? They're going to go to hell and only the poor are going to heaven. So what's the path to heaven? Be poor. Take a vow of poverty. So in that note, we're going to receive all of your goods up here this morning. You bring me all of your stuff and you turn it over to the church. We'll see over it for you. You guys live in the whole, all of America would be going to hell. 
So when we misunderstand the context of this passage, well, then we misunderstand what Jesus is communicating here. And I don't say that to take away from what we're sure He's communicating. There's two people, and there's two places they end up in for eternity. Heaven or hell. But note verse 14, where we were last week. And the Pharisees also, who were covetous, heard all these things, and they derided Him. Remember, Jesus is teaching about biblical stewardship. He taught principles like, be faithful in that which is less, and you can be trusted with that which is more. You can't serve two masters. You, you, you'll love the one and hate the other. You, you must serve God alone. Biblical stewardship. And we've learned in that teaching from verse 14 that the issue with the religious leaders of that day was they were covetous. So much so in verse number 18, Jesus pointed out to us that for their love of money and the things that money would allow them to purchase, they were not faithful to Scripture, letting things go on under their rule that otherwise went against the Bible. So I don't think Jesus is contrasting rich and poor here as if one or the other would determine eternity. In fact, throughout church history, when we see such passages applied this way and people take on vows of poverty for, for the, these types of reasons, we see that end horribly. It's never ended well. This is not what's being taught. He, he's, ta- he's talking about here the contrast between living for the temporal And living for the eternal. Just like the unjust steward earlier in the chapter and his master. Living for the temporal only has temporal benefits. Oh, and those guys were good at it. The steward probably more so than his master. But they were sort of equally witted. And they both kind of went at business and life and the things for the temporal in this way. But it only had the temporal benefits. Jesus is... Contrasting that here, he's contrasting living by the truths of the word and not living by the truths of the word. Because not only does he point out the Pharisees' covetousness, he points out their willingness to abandon being faithful to the word to to kind of appease their covetousness. So even the Pharisees, the, the religious of this day, had become guilty of living for the temporal, not the eternal, And being unfaithful to the word to accommodate it. So Jesus is teaching that we must live for the eternal. And he emphasizes here, on top of what he just taught, what a more sure investment this is with our lives. I think that's a good thing for us to think about this morning. How are you investing your life? You're rich in time, as far as you know. You have these seconds, you have these minutes, you have these days, you have these weeks, you have these months, you have these years. How are you investing your time? How are you living out these moments that God has blessed you with? How are you stewarding it? Jesus helps us here with these two contrasting people. As opposite on each side of the spectrum as he could illustrate to his audience then. With this, he brings us then in verse 22 and 23 to two places. He continues the the teaching, contrasting the eternal outcomes of each temporal choice for living. And just to make it simple to you this morning, the two places are heaven and hell. Verse 22, we, we begin getting introduced to heaven. And it came to pass that the beggar died and he was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. 
the beggar dies and he is carried by angels to be with Abraham. In life, only dogs looked after this beggar. But in death, in the eternal life, God sends his angels to see after this beggar. Do you see the difference in the temporal and the eternal? No matter what your thoughts of of how your life is now, I want to remind you that in Christ, right with God, your eternal life is much to be desired. I think it's unique that Jesus names the beggar. He doesn't name the rich man. It contrasts what the Pharisees would have done telling their own story. They would have paraded the rich man and given him a particular name, though Jesus said he's a certain rich man. And they would have for sure not named the beggar because he would have been an outcast to them. He would have been an afterthought to them. And Jesus sort of does the the opposite of that here. And then he says in telling the story, when he died, the very angels of God, the angels from the presence of God, the angels from heaven, they came and they escorted him into the afterlife. It's no longer dogs caring for this poor beggar. It's God's angels. That's why we would conclude it is not death to die for the believer. It's why we would say we can, we can face the reality of death with a, a, a new grace, a spiritual joy, knowing that it is simply a passing from this shore to the next. I don't look forward to dying and I don't want to die, but I don't think I fear death. You could hold a gun to my head this morning. I'd be afraid of you and that gun. But I love the old John R. Rice story. I think it's John R. Rice. Works good if it's John R. Rice. He's on an elevator in a hotel. He's in some big city preaching. And a guy hops on the elevator right as the doors are closing. He's going to mug him. They're in there all alone. And he pulls a gun. And he says, give me your money, old man. And John R. Rice looks right down the barrel of that pistol and says, you can't threaten me with heaven. What do you do with that? Yeah, I don't think we would choose Lazarus' life. I don't want to be a, I don't want to be sick like that. I like to eat. I don't want to live off crumbs. I don't want my entire existence to be propped up outside the gate of someone's house hoping they'll care for me and just depending on the dogs to treat me medically. But in the afterlife, we see that for those in Christ, for those who are as they should be with God, it just gets better. Verse 25 teaches us that Lazarus has entered into eternal comfort. It says, but now he is comforted and thou art tormented. It also teaches us that he's eternally in a secure place. Verse 26, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot. What is Abraham teaching the rich man here? This is a finality. Lazarus is where he is from now on and you are where you are from now on. There's no changing things once time on this life has ended. It's too late to pray then. It's too late to make right with God then. And you will. And the rich man will. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But when you die and you're not right with God, that's a finality. Now, to the believer, it's a wonderful finality. Forever comforted, 
and forever secure. So the first place we're introduced to is heaven. The second place we're introduced to is hell. The end of verse number 22 tells us the rich man also died and he was buried. And in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Now, for some of you theologians here this morning, let me, let me give some details. From the original languages, the word is Hades. It doesn't actually say hell. Hades would be the place of the dead. And so we see that Lazarus and the rich man have both entered into the place of the dead. Let's make that theologically correct. Does that change the reality of hell? It doesn't change it. He's still in torment. He's still so tortured that he says, let Lazarus dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am tormented in this flame. Now, whether he is actually in hell or not, he's certainly not yet in the lake of fire because we read in the book of Revelation that that comes later. We see that when he died, he passed into an eternal place for the dead that was tormenting him. So if you, if you want to twist or turn the, the language of the English Bible here that reads hell or doesn't read hell, fine. But he still wasn't in a desirable place. He's hot. He's thirsty. He is in a flame. Verse 23 says, And in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torment, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. Same for Lazarus. You could say, well, he's not actually in heaven yet. Well, he's, he's in paradise. This place, Abraham's bosom, what does that mean? Well, he's somewhere where Abraham is. Well, where is Abraham? And some would say, well, prior to Jesus going to the cross, old covenant saints could not be in the presence of God, but they're on the Mount Transfiguration. We see old covenant saints and Jesus together with the Spirit. So that would probably debunk that theology a little bit. But for our sake today, as we apply this, not how we would interpret this, but as we apply this, when we die, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord for the believer. We would call that heaven. How do you describe heaven? Now, in Revelation, we get a new heaven and a new earth described to us well. Well, how do we describe the current heaven? I don't exactly know. I know, how to, I know what the description of the new heaven is. But here's one thing I know for sure. It's the presence of God. We die and we're in the presence of God for believers. Well, when you die and you're not a believer, where do you go? Not to the presence of God. In fact, it seems that there's an awareness for those in hell of those in the presence of God and that that's sort of part of the torture. It's also clear that there is a flame. It's also clear that they are hot and thirsty. Abraham confirms this, verse 25. Abraham's son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and thou art tormented. And then verse 26 it's that he's forever in this state. Beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fix, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. So there's this separation, this gulf, he calls it. So there's two people, there's two places 
And then there's two prayers. Now, both of these prayers are by the rich man. Initially, the rich man prays for relief. In verse 24, we see his request. He prays to Father Abraham. And his prayer is for mercy. Have mercy on me and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. Now, after his prayer, in verse 25, we see Abraham answer his prayer, and the answer is a refusal. Son, remember, thou in thy lifetime received thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he's comforted and you are tormented. So he says, I'm not going to answer the request that you've given here. Why? Verse 26, he gives the reason, because there's this gulf between us, and so we can't get to you and you can't get to us. R.C. Sproul wrote, Abraham is saying that it is too late. This is the situation of ultimate separation. Not only is there a great unbridgeable chasm, but it is fixed. Nothing can change it. So the rich man prays for relief, but there is no relief for this rich man. Secondly, the rich man then, he prays for his family. Now these are natural flows of things. I'm being tormented, so what do I ask for first? Mercy. Please remove me from this torment. Well, I'm not going to get removed from this torment, so what do I do next? I don't want anybody else to come to this torment. So he prays for his family. We see his request in verse 27 and 28 as he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house, for I have five brethren, that he may testify to them, lest they also come into this place of torment. He says, Father Abraham, Send Lazarus back and let him warn my five brothers about this place that I'm in. And again, Abraham refuses him. Abraham said in verse 29, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if somebody goes to them from the dead, then they will repent. So Abraham's refusal is, I'm not sending someone from the dead. They have the scriptures. They should obey the scriptures. Verse 31, if they won't hear the scriptures, they wouldn't be helped anymore should somebody go from the the dead back to them. Now, I want you to notice the position of the rich man in these prayers. While he is praying, he's still trying to pray on his own terms, he's still trying to pray as if he were still in control. He tells Abraham what to do. He's a man that's used to being in charge. He's a man used to having others follow him. He's one who's used to commanding others around and getting his way. He's used to being served. What does he tell Abraham to do? Father Abraham, you send Lazarus down to comfort me because I'm being tormented. Why should Lazarus comfort him? Well, he's asking for mercy. You say, oh, well, he, he realizes the error of his ways in his living. And now that he's being tormented, he sees how this can be handled right. And he wants to go this way. But still, he's being selfish. He's being stubborn. He's not even really saying, get me out of here. He's just saying, comfort me where I'm at. All on his own terms. He's praying, but he's... Still doing it in a condescending tone. 
right there in the very flames of hell. MacArthur says about this, the flames of hell do not atone for sin or purge to harden sinners from their depravity. We could also note from his praying that he's, he's praying, he's desiring, he's asking for something that is outside of God's plan for redemption within his re- revealed word. And Abraham corrects him on this. Send Lazarus back to the dead, from the dead. They'll listen to him. And Abraham corrects him and says, well, that's not the way to salvation. Whatever your testimony of salvation here this morning, I hope it includes the word. How did you get saved? Well, we're saved through the gospel. And Abraham makes that clear. He says, just because somebody goes back to them from the dead, even if they believe them, if they won't obey and believe the word, they won't be saved. They have Moses and the prophets. Let him hear them. Now, at this point in the timeline, Abraham is dead. Moses is dead. The prophets are dead. So what is he saying there? Those are the ones from the dead he needs to listen to. We have Old Testament scriptures. The way to God is through those scriptures. This, in effect, would be saying in our day, unless you believe the Bible, you will not be saved. Romans 1.16 For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Gospel, good news of Christ. What is the good news? That Jesus came, He lived a sinless life, He died in our place, shed sinless blood, but He didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave and conquered death. He was seen proving it, and He ascended and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, making intercession for you and I. That's the good news. How do we know this good news? This is in the Bible. It was given initially as Scripture. And it's been passed down as the Scriptures. Paul writes to the Romans, I'm not ashamed of the Gospel of Christ. Why? For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. What is he saying there? The Scriptures contain the power that you and I need to be saved. And I would say specifically there, They contain the knowledge that we must be made alive through the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. Only Scripture, revealed through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, can overcome human unbelief and bring faith unto salvation. So this would conclude for us then, is this rich man says, boy, if Lazarus, I have an idea. I'm smart. Lazarus would go back to my brothers from the dead. They wouldn't dare come back to where I'm at. Lazarus could go tell them about this. Abraham says, no, it wouldn't work. They've got to believe the scriptures. This concludes for us then in the modern church. There is no argument. There is no apologetic. There is no evidence or amount of convincing that will ever turn unbelief to faith. Only the Holy Spirit does this. And He only does this through the sharing of the gospel. How should we evangelize? How should I convince the atheist? How can I reach my unsaved friends and family? Gospel living, gospel preaching. Oh, you think you're better than everybody else. You're just a hypocrite. 
You got me. I'm just a sinner saved by God's grace. I'm just like you. But one day I met this man named Jesus. And now I'm just one beggar trying to tell another beggar, here's where I found some bread. I once was blind, but now I can see. I don't, I don't have anything that you can't have. I don't know anything that you can't know. There's no amount of convincing that I could bring to you that could convince you, change your mind about heaven and hell and your eternal state. But I promise you this. One day I met a man named Jesus and he changed my life forever. That's what Abraham's saying to the rich man. Now in our, in our sense. So Jesus teaches his audience that, he, that biblical stewardship is eternal stewardship and that eternal stewardship is utterly important. You cannot live for this life alone. You must be prepared for eternity and you must be helping others be prepared for eternity. And our day, this teaching reminds us that there is a life after this one. It's a good reminder. Church, it's easy for us to come in here week after week. We, we depend upon the hymns to edify us and encourage us. We depend upon the fellowship to sharpen us. We depend upon the reading and teaching and preaching of the word to feed us. It's a good reminder this morning that eternity is real, that there's a life after this one, and that in eternity there's a real heaven and there's a real hell. Heaven is a comfort. Hell is torture. Now, I'm not one who spends a whole lot of time. Well, I just teach you through the word. And when it comes up, I teach you what it says. And so we get on heaven and hell this morning because that's where we are. But as a child grew up with a group of preachers, and I praise the Lord for them, who felt like hell needed to be preached on often. I hear a lot of preaching on hell anymore. And I'll tell you the... As a little boy who knew the Bible, you know, I knew the Bible taught to me through Sunday school. I was in a preacher's home. Dad taught us the Bible in the house. Mom taught us the Bible in the house. I was in a Christian school. They taught us the Bible in the Christian school. The thing that finally just kind of pushed me, well, the thing was the Holy Spirit's conviction, for sure. But the thing that was on my mind at my moment of salvation we had driven home on a Wednesday night and we saw the fire trucks. They passed us and we said, uh-oh, it must be a fire. And we were kind of behind them and they turned left where we turned left. And they said, oh, it must be on our street. And we could see the smoke and we said, that's near our house. And we stood there that Wednesday night and we watched our house burn to the ground. And my mom was crying because all of her, you know, memories and things were gone. And I'm sure dad was thinking, what are we going to do? Where am I going to sleep my family for a while? I don't know what my sister was thinking. Still don't. But I remember as a little boy, 11 years old, I'm sitting there, I'm watching that flame. In the back of my mind, it's just running through these mean, bloodshot-eyed, knuckle-gripped, sweaty preachers. Saying, you're going to go to hell if you don't get saved. And as an 11-year-old boy, it just broke me. And I thought to myself, that's what it would be like to be in there. And we were a long ways away. We were out by the street. And this is hot from that distance. I wouldn't want to be in there. 
And I didn't get saved that night, but I realized that night, I, 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 got, I got to do something. Well, some time went on and I started having stress dreams or nightmares or whatever they were. We, were, we moved into the prophet's chamber for the church for a little while. And there was only two rooms. So my sister got a room, my parents got a room, and there was a hallway between the other two rooms. So they hung a curtain at one end and I slept in the hallway. But the hallway was only big enough for a bed. Well, it's kind of cool. I would jump in my bed every night because you couldn't walk around to the sides of the bed. There was a wall and a wall and a bed in between. And I blocked off the door at the other end there. But, you know, not going to burn down or anything. So I'd run in there at night and I'd just jump in my bed. But then I would lay there and I would think, if that side of the house caught on fire, I've got this door blocked. I couldn't get out. Or if this room or this room caught on fire, I'm between the two. I'll burn up in here. So it wasn't long that kind of thinking that on a Wednesday night, we, we broke the routine. They dismissed the youth one Wednesday night and said, Brother David's going to take all the kids over to the gym and they're going to work on an Easter play they're going to do for us on Easter Sunday morning. And I remember thinking to myself, all right, I don't have to listen to that sweaty, bloodshot-eyed, tip, teeth-gripping preacher say, you're going to hell. So I let my guard down. And that's when God sort of got me. And the youth guy, he said, before we begin, man, don't you hate those before you begin moments? I want to make sure y'all know what we're doing here. Why would we even do an Easter play? And he shared the gospel. And he said, all right, now we're going to practice. But if you need to talk about that, you come see me afterwards. So boy, I was first in line. And I said, I, I got to get saved. And he said, oh, Chance, you're saved. You're one of the best kids around here. He said, just go talk to the preacher. You're probably just doubting your salvation. So I went up and the church was just letting out for the adults. And I went up to the preacher. Dad was gone. He had, Mom was home with a migraine headache. Dad had taken the church van to go drop people off that he picked up for church. I went up and I saw the preacher and I said, Brother David, Talk to us tonight. I, I'm not saved. I got to get saved. And he said, Ah, oh boy, you're saved. Just wait till your daddy gets back. He'll talk to you. You're just doubting your salvation. So I said, All right, I'm over two with these spiritual leaders in my life helping me here. And we were just, we were just standing here. He, he didn't stand at the back of the church. He would just stand down here in the front and church would dismiss. You could come by and talk to him. And so I just went over here to this side of the pulpit about where Leanne is standing. And I just knelt down. And I just started praying on my own. And initially I was pretty pious and religious. And I said, now God tonight. No, I didn't pray like that. I said, Lord, I don't know if I'm saved or if I'm not. I'm afraid of going to hell, but I've been baptized. I go to church. Dad's a preacher. Mom teaches Sunday school, Christian home. I don't remember at 11 if I laid it out quite like that, but I was sort of making my case for God. Pretty good person. But if I'm not saved, Lord, would you please save me? Sort of that, you know, fire insurance and then an umbrella policy. Nothing. I knew what I needed to say. I knew what my repentance and confession needed to look like. I needed to admit to an almighty God 
that I wasn't enough in and of myself. And I needed him. This was something I couldn't do on my own. And so I said, Lord, that's not true. I know I'm not saved. Please save me. Those are the hardest words I ever said. Probably that or when I asked Jerry Massey, could I marry your daughter? There was such a peace that followed that. Just, Lord, would you? And he said, sure I would, buddy. Not quite like that, but I don't have any verses for that. But it was different. And I remember standing up and thinking, uh-oh, now I've got to tell somebody. And some of my friends had followed me up there because they didn't know what I was doing. What's Chance talking to the youth guy and the preacher for? Is he telling on something we've all done together? Is he coming clean? Do you remember that as a kid, that anxiety? Oh, that's the worst. Kids, just don't do stupid stuff. Then you don't have to worry about it getting told on. And the preacher said, did you pray? I said, yeah. I said, I got saved. He said, well, praise the Lord. He said, we'll baptize you Sunday night. I said, okay. And I turned around to walk out to go find a parent. Or We were living right there on the property. We were living in the prophet's chamber. And some of my friends were like, well, he thought you were saved. And I didn't know them, but I can look back now into that moment in my brain. And what they were saying was, is, golly, if he's not saved, we're going to hell for sure. <laughs> so I, I went out the back of the church, couldn't find dad. I went down to mom and I said, Mom, I knocked on the door and she said, oh, don't bang on the door. She was in the dark room with a migraine headache. I said, I'm sorry to bother you, Mom, but I got to tell you something. She said, just talk to your dad. It was one of those nights I really needed the adults in my life and nobody would talk to me. And I went over and I knelt down beside her bed and I was crying. And she said, what's the matter, buddy? And I said, I got saved tonight, Mom. And she said, oh, that makes me feel so much better. And then the dad got home and I told him and we had a family moment, you know, and then whew, slept so good that night. I hadn't slept well in that hallway bedroom. Oh, slept so great that night. It hasn't been perfect for sure since then, but the thing that's just been right all the way is that I knew my eternal state. I, I, I got it settled. I made it right with the Lord. I didn't know all the right stuff. I'm still learning the stuff. Some of you still correct me week after week and I'm the one up here preaching and I'm thankful for that. I want to get the doctrine as right as I can possibly get it. But the one thing that I've always been sure of since then is I'm, I'm one of his. I'm right with God. Jesus teaches us here that that's an important thing for us to consider. It's an important thing for us to make right. There is a life after this one and there is a real heaven and there's a real hell. Heaven is a comfort. Hell is a torture. The time that you have in this life is the only time that you will ever get to make things right with God. The way to be right with God is laid out for you in the Scriptures. His Word. The Bible. Give God's Word on it. My preacher, every time he would preach on this passage, he had, my pastor was always bringing up young preachers. You know, there's... I think when he died, they said that I don't remember the number now. There's like 38 men who had come out of, from under his ministry that were pastoring and preaching. There were always five or six of us sitting under him and learning. And he would always look at us when he would preach this and he would say, boys, 
Don't ever preach on hell without crying. And he would always, he had a poem. He liked to do poems. And I don't know the whole poem, but I remember the end. He would say, there's one road to heaven, or there's one road to hell, and there's one road to home. And I'm asking you, my friend, which road are you on? Sticks in my brain. Well, I'm thankful to the Lord for the Holy Spirit of God, making me alive though I was spiritually dead, drawing me to Himself, letting me be clear on the Scriptures what what I had to do, what He had done for me. I hope that you have that same confidence. Let's stand and pray this morning.